Liberator is hit. With one wing completely shattered, the plane plummets groundward. Our Pacific Island warfare is not cheap. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I am your loving host. You can call me Todd Conklin, or just Todd. Yeah, that's fine. You can call me Todd. That's plenty formal enough for us. So you may be asking, and uh, it would not be an, uh, a non-reasonable question if you were asking this, why on earth would I start with a B-29 Flying Fortress um, getting shot up and flown over World War II? Um, as my beginning intro moment to this week's episode of the Pre-Accident Podcast long version? That would be a super good question. It, in fact, you're an astute listener, and for that I thank you. But I'm not going to answer it yet, but I will tell you it's definitely a, a teaser for what we're going to talk about today. This is the podcast, and if you're brand new and have not, not heard one of these before, welcome. Uh, you're you're joining a, a great community of people who think alike and argue and discuss and talk, and you're welcome. Uh, you're more than welcome. In fact, we're an open and uh, inviting place to be. If you've been listening to the podcast a long time, welcome back. I missed you, and I owe you a quick report on my New Year's resolution, the year of letting go, which is not going badly. I mean, I can't I can't say it's a I can't say it's a bad resolution. It's actually a pretty good resolution. The problem is, is I don't think letting go, even though I gave myself something to do, you know, every day I'm going to let something go. If I don't let something go, I give something away, um, and which works great. It's just not on the top of my uh, list that much. You'd think it would be. But every time I think of it, I definitely am good at it. And, and I have gotten rid of some stuff. There's no question about it. So, I mean... That has to be good. When you cleave crap out of your life, um, even, you know, junk in your closet or toolboxes, I've gone through kind of a bunch of stuff. That's got to be good. It's just not as, um, it's good. It's just not as emotionally satisfying as I would hoped it would be. There you go. That's just a, a big slug of honesty for you right there. Let's see. February, as we know, is exciting. And I'm uh, actually recording the introduction to this. Um, right now, so pretty real time. It's been, at least in New Mexico and Santa Fe, it's been a, gosh, I, the, I think the mild winter seems like it's not enough language. We just almost haven't had a winter. It's been kind of crazy. Some of you guys are getting popped, but man, a lot of us, I don't know. It's, the snow would be good because we need the water, but we didn't get much snow. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see how things level out. And that's a part of it as well. Busier than can be. Um, and working a lot with um, fatality and serious injury, serious event stuff, which is valuable work and tough work. And you start getting to these fatality prevention or uh, uh, what do they call it? Fatality potential events. And that's where this gets all kind of, crazy and nutty and 
I, I don't know. I, I just, um, I'm watching a lot of this happen, and I think we have lots to talk about today. So that'll be good. Today's podcast is, um, well, it, it comes from a story. So, and I want to tell you the story because I think that sort of leads into to really another story that I think will be pretty interesting for you to hear, and you'll enjoy it. So I, I probably should bump her in to give you a little time to sort of cleanse the palate, if you will. Think of the the acoustic music as kind of a sorbet uh, that you would have after the first course before the next course. Um, and then we'll come back and let's talk about a story because I got lots to tell you. Until then, my friends, welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I am so glad you're here. Please keep listening. Thank you for all your amazing comments on iTunes. Wow, that blows me away. Thanks for listening. That's even crazier. Um, thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for including people. And most importantly, thanks for dropping me notes and for offering suggestions of people um, to be on the podcast. That's really helpful to me. Plus, it's kind of fun. I get to meet all sorts of new people and talk to them. And maybe it'll be cool for you as well. I mean, because you'll get to hear it. And so everybody comes out a winner. And isn't that what it's at all? You know, that's it. That's what it's all about. So without any further ado, let's have our World War II aviation version, at least the story as we know it and are going to tell it. Um, let's have that podcast. So here it is, ladies and gentlemen, the pre-accident podcast for this week. So I was working with some cats, um, I don't know, a couple, three weeks ago. We were all getting ready to go to dinner, and I met a whole bunch of new people. And they were talking about safety because that's what we were talking about. It's kind of the, the that's who was at the dinner. And we were getting ready to go to some restaurant, you know, kind of a normal evening, no no big deal. And I met a couple guys who uh, work in the solar power industry. And one of the jobs they have is to put solar cells, solar collectors, on top of buildings, which makes sense, right? I mean, that's that strikes me that that's kind of what their job is. And uh, they were talking about uh, accidents and and how they'd really gotten a pretty good handle on fall protection. And of course, I saw that as kind of a teachable moment. So I'm telling them, you know, that that's a really air tolerant um, system, and that the fall protection tools don't really care about falling very much. They only care about landing and haha and Joke, joke, joke. And they said, you know, that's that's not our biggest problem. And I said, well, huh, that's good. I mean, that's really good. To, you know, don't don't relax, but that's pretty good. And they said, our biggest problem is is that in order to um, actually put these solar cells on roofs of some building, we have to go into the attic, in, into the, the crawl space, the attic above above the ceiling but below the roof, and inspect it because in the attic we find lots of things that – we always secretly hope we don't find, to which I said something like spiders. But he said, no, mostly rotten joists or, or the the roof isn't strong enough. And he said what they would do oftentimes then is before they could put the cells up, they have to go in and husband alongside the joists um, more lumber in order to make everything strong enough. And so, you know, that, that this is all set up for a big conversation. And I said, well, you know, that seems like a part of it. He said, yeah, our, our biggest failure rate, the failure rate that we're really fixated on now, is people falling through attics. And I said, oh, yeah. Because, you know, if you think about it, if you're working, if you, if you stand on the joists 
you're probably safe. But if you accidentally step between two joists onto sheetrock or onto lath or whatever it is that's that the ceiling's made of, the opportunity to fall through the ceiling's really high. And probably some of you who are listening to this story have either seen this happen before or uh, actually participated in the old leg through the ceiling uh, activity before. It's relatively common because that's how it works. We put joists up to make the ceiling, and then we attach, in most cases, sheetrock to those joists, and it's not reinforced because no one's ever going to walk on the sheetrock, so it doesn't have to hold up. So I I don't want to get lost in, in this story too much. But um, I said, well, what are you doing about it? And he says, well, we're aggressively going out and and, uh, investigating every time somebody falls through the ceiling to figure out what's going on and and, uh, why they fell. And I said, well, I'm no genius, but the root cause of that is going to be gravity um, because that strikes me as actually the root cause, but also kind of clever. And they said, well, you know, there's – there's lots to learn there, and for a while we were um, having pretty firm discussions with the people who fall. If they're contractors, it may actually impede their ability to come back and work for us. It sounded like, to me, they were seeing the joist fall-throughs, um, A, as conscious decisions, um, the function of a bad person doing a bad thing, and B, completely preventable by using blame and notching up accountability. And so I said, huh, I don't think the guys who fall through the attics are terribly interesting. I would go out and talk to the people who don't fall through attics. I would look at your contractors who do a lot of this work because that's what these guys do and they do it every single day. And one of the interesting things is, is they don't fall through the attics. And they looked at me like I had a hand growing out of my forehead. They just, like, like I just, like I said, the stupidest, you know, the, the, where did that come from kind of look. And it was really interesting because I thought, oh, wow, um, that's, uh, that's maybe an unusual way to see that because I, I, it's not very interesting how you fall. To me, it'd be really interesting how you do that work and not fall. And that led me to remember a story. And it's a story that I ought to share with you because maybe you haven't heard it before. And in fact, maybe you think my comment of studying the workers who don't fall um, sounds goofy. But I don't think it is goofy. And I'll tell you why I don't think it's goofy. And it has to do with a guy named Abraham Wald. Have you heard that name? Um, he's a mathematician. Uh, he was a mathematician. He's 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 long gone. He's no longer with us. He's not uh, not on this mortal coil. But he was a really important mathematician, at least to those of us who practice kind of the new view, the safety differently, that look at systems in a different way. Wald was a a, a pretty famous mathematician. Certainly during World War II. He was born in 1902, and he was born in Hungary, although I don't think Hungary was called Hungary in 1902. Romania, or this, uh, this is sort of World War I-ish times. I mean, it's, it's pre-World War II. Um, and and he, uh, he, was a, he was just a smart kid, um, a 
a cute, rather religious Jewish kid who had a incredible proclivity for math. He 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 just he was really 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 good at math, and because of that, he he rifled through school quickly. I mean, he zoomed up through school quickly, and ended up at the University of uh, of Vienna, where he studied mathematics. Where he and he and he really did look in great detail at mathematics. And in some point in the mid thirties, nineteen thirties. He he was deep in his mathematical studies and, and quite good at it, but he was really no longer welcome in Hungary because of his religion, because the politics were changing dramatically in Hungary at that time, and because he was a threat to them because he was so smart. He was, he was so good with math. So he had to start looking for ways to get out of Hungary, and many, many, many Jews had to get out of Hungary in the 30s for sure. And he found a rescue job in Austria. And he basically, while he was in Austria, he's still pretty young, he kind of did, um, I, I'm going to make this term up, but sort of uh, mathematical odd jobs um, with other scholars. And in doing that, um, really became even smarter, but more importantly became sort of more networked. And as you can imagine, Austria was not much better than Hungary. And so at some point, uh, when the Nazis conquered Austria, Abraham Wald needed to get out of there. And he ended up going to the United States. He, he went first to Colorado Springs, Colorado, which would have been very interesting in the 30s uh, in Colorado Springs. But he didn't stay there long because almost immediately... He was offered and took a professorship at Columbia University, where he spent the majority of his career, really. I mean, that's that's kind of where he stayed his entire academic career. And he, he got to work with and be a part of and eventually actually the kind of the, the in, at Los Alamos, we might call him a program manager, but sort of the leader of a group called the SRG, which stands for the Statistical Research Group. And the SRG is interesting, at least to me, because the SRG was in many ways, especially at Columbia, was in many ways the Manhattan Project for math during World War II. And so he was, he was incredibly involved in linear calculations he was really involved in 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 theoretical and applied mathematics for the statistical research group and wild i think is is very very interesting for lots of reasons but one of the reasons he's so interesting is because wild was really never able to escape the idea of an enemy alien in the united states at that time because of where he was from and so in many ways, and this is interesting, he could not have access to his own data. In fact, as soon as Wald would do a page of calculations, that page was taken away from him and classified, and he was not able to see it. So it's a really interesting um, problem that existed really during, well, even at the Manhattan Project level, where these guys came across from Europe and did a lot of heavy intellectual lifting but weren't really given the ability to actually 
access the information that they were creating in the theories they were making. He he became really, really interested when the Army Air Corps, remember this is this is during World War II, actually asked the SRG, the Statistical Research Group, and they asked actually Abraham Wald, who's who's the leader of it, to help them understand um why planes were getting shot out of the air. Fighter planes, bombers. Wald had this ability to look at these applied problems, these kind of vague theories, and really turn them into actual calculations. And and he was, uh, the, the military was, the word I think I would say was they were very concerned by the fact that lots of planes were going over and many planes were not returning. And so the problem was, if you think about this, that planes need to be able to do their military mission and then survive that mission and then turn around and fly back so that the crews of those planes could live to fight another day and so the resource, the plane itself, could also be used the next day. So planes should not get shot down. That's the problem. The answer was to armor the plane so that when it got shot at, it did not get taken out of the sky. The problem with armoring a plane is that if the plane gets too heavy, it it uses a lot of fuel, it flies solely, and at some point it breaks Bernoulli's law. It can't get thrust, and it won't fly. And so they had to think about ways to, to using armor on a, on a fighter plane or on a bomber in the most optimal places. And, and that's where Abraham Wald entered this calculation. And they gave him a tremendous amount of data and a tremendous amount of charts. And he looked at very carefully the statistical record of how planes got hit by bullets. And the the Army Air Corps had done a tremendous amount of study on this. And they could tell you exactly where the plane got hit. And what's interesting is that the Army Air Corps' belief was is that on that plane, the more bullet holes it had in it, the more armor it needed in the places where the bullet holes are. Which makes sense, right? So you look for the plane where the plane's been shot up. You patch the shot up places and then you armor it so that it's more robust and reinforced so the next time it goes out there, it doesn't get shot up. But Abraham Wald said, that's wrong. He said, the armor doesn't go where the bullet holes are. It goes where the bullet holes aren't. And his premise is really interesting because if a plane got back to base, it survived. It's the planes that didn't come back, the planes that crashed and and burned. Those were the planes where the bullets hit in exactly the right place. And he said, if you study where the failure is and reinforce the failure, then you're actually missing the part that actually keeps the plane flying. Don't put the armor where the bullet holes are. Put the armor where the bullet holes aren't. And that's a really interesting thing. 
And then along comes these guys putting up solar cells on roofs, talking about people falling through attics. And you can maybe see why I said, I'm not really interested in why people fall through attics. That actually strikes me as kind of an easy thing to do. I'm incredibly interested in how workers don't fall through attics. And that, I think, is kind of the Abraham Wald way to understand the failure. Interestingly enough, Wald's work was tremendously important to the success of the military. And Wald went on to study in great detail not only how to armor bombers or fighter planes, but how planes could actually get better fuel usage by changing the arc of their attack or what optimal speeds are best for fuel use for that plane. And all of the things he studied gave the, the allied powers, the good guys, a, a percentage advantage over the bad guys. And that's how wars are won. That percentage of advantage is enough to make a difference. But in many ways, what he did was change the way we look at and understand success. The plane's got to fly, and too much armor makes it too heavy and too slow and use too much fuel. Don't look at the place where the bullet holes are. Look at the place where the bullet holes aren't. And then, in 1950, flying over India, giving a series of lectures uh, around applied mathematics to universities in India, Abraham Wald and his wife died, ironically and tragically, in a plane crash. At 48 years old, Wald had done tremendous amount of effort for the war and to a great extent, changed the way we look at and understand how to use data. Data helps us understand where the system fails. And in knowing where the system fails, it helps us understand where the system succeeds. That's why I told those guys that I would look for the guys who don't fall through the attic, and I'd ask them, how come? What do you guys do differently than the crews that do fall through the attic? Because I think where success is, is where learning can be very, very valuable. And this story is a good story to help us remember that. So there you have it, the pre-accident podcast for today. Um, that's a great story. I mean, look it up. There's lots of great detail on it. But I think most importantly... Think about it, uh, how that applies to where you work and, and the work you do. Uh, whatever you do, if you're a software guy, uh, it fits perfectly. Um, if you're a safety person, new safety person, manager, whatever you do, I'm a medical, it's, that, that's a really interesting way to see the world. Uh, to me, that's, that story's worth telling. I, I don't know how effective I told it um, to those roofer guys, but uh, I, I I th I think ultimately my point was um, was made. It took a while because at first they looked at me like, "Son, you don't have any mirrors in your house. What's up with you?" But I I, I think it's it's worthwhile to think that over. That is, my friends, 
the podcast. We could go on. Oh, I could go on. That's never a problem. But I don't think I will today. I think I'm going to give a, give a nod and, and a bunch of thank yous and hit out of here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. Tell your friends. Thanks for telling them, too. That makes a difference. Our numbers are getting gigantic, and that is very exciting. Until then, my friends, I, uh, I hope you learn something new every single day. Maybe today was a good day for that. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, y'all, be safe.